episode, we learned about the slave revolt in morality, the inversion of the aristocratic value equation, where it used to be the case that being good meant being pure, noble, powerful, and loved by God under the so-called master morality. It came to be, after the slave revolt in morality, that you started by being loved by God, and then you were pure and good. And in this slave morality, being loved by God meant you were suffering, deprived, and impotent. This made you pious, loved by God, and therefore good. Those who are insatiable, meaning greedy and full of desires, meaning lustful, self-satisfied, meaning arrogant, for example, are considered bad, meaning evil, according to the inverted value equation. At the end of section 8, Nietzsche said, What is certain, at least, is that Subak signal, Israel, with its vengefulness and revaluation of all values, has hitherto triumphed again and again over all other ideals, over all nobler ideals. Now on to section 9. Quote, But why are you talking about nobler ideals? Let us stick to the facts. The people have won, or the slaves, or the mob, or the herd, or whatever you like to call them. If this has happened through the Jews, very well. In that case, no people ever had a more world-historic mission. The masters have been disposed of. The morality of the common man has won. One may conceive of this victory as at the same time a blood poisoning. It has mixed the races together. I shan't contradict. But this intoxication has undoubtedly been successful. The redemption of the human race, from the masters, that is, is going forward. Everything is visibly becoming Judaized, Christianized, mobized. What do the words matter? The progress of this poison through the entire body of mankind seems irresistible. Its pace and tempo may from now on even grow slower, subtler, less audible, more cautious. There is plenty of time. To this end, does the church today still have any necessary role to play? Does it still have the right to exist? Or could one do without it, one asks? It seems to hinder rather than hasten this progress. But perhaps that is its usefulness. Certainly it has, over the years, become something crude and boorish, something repellent to a more delicate intellect, to a truly modern taste. 
Ought it not to become at least a little more refined? Today it alienates rather than seduces. Which of us would be a free spirit if the church did not exist? It is the church and not its poison that repels us. Apart from the church, we too love the poison. This is the epilogue of a free spirit to my speech, an honest animal, as he has abundantly revealed, and a democrat, moreover. He had been listening to me till then and could not endure to listen to my silence, for at this point I have much to be silent about. Unquote. This section is fairly clear. Nietzsche, anticipating a challenge, plays the role of someone who seems quite content with the result of the slave revolt in morality. This person isn't concerned with the loss of what Nietzsche calls nobler ideals. He's clearly on the side of the so-called common man, who was once thought to be low, now thought to be good. Maybe in Nietzsche's mind, this assumed role was that of a Marxist. Who knows? Certainly it's someone who holds liberal values, supports progressivism, and is proud to be a member of a democratic society. It's likely that this person leans toward being an atheist, given that he mentions how the church seems to have outlived its usefulness, and that the new society can live on without it. Section 10. Quote, the slave revolt in morality begins when ressentiment itself becomes creative and gives birth to values, the ressentiment of natures that are denied the true reaction, that of deeds, and compensate themselves with an imaginary revenge, while every noble morality develops from a triumphant affirmation of itself, slave morality from the outset says no to what is outside, what is different, what is not itself, and this no is its creative deed. This inversion of the value-positing eye, this need to direct one's view outward instead of back to oneself, is of the essence of ressentiment. In order to exist, slave morality always first needs a hostile external world. It needs, psychologically speaking, external stimuli in order to act at all. Its action is fundamentally reaction. The reverse is the case with the noble mode of valuation. It acts and grows spontaneously. It seeks its opposite only so as to affirm itself more gratefully and triumphantly. Its negative concept, low, common, bad, is only a subsequently invented pale, contrasting image in relation to its positive basic concept, filled with life and passion through and through. We noble ones, we good, beautiful, happy ones. When the noble mode of valuation blunders and sins against reality, it does so in respect to the sphere with which it is not sufficiently familiar, against a real knowledge of which it has indeed inflexibly guarded itself. In some circumstances, it misunderstands the sphere it despises, that of the common man, of the lower orders. On the other hand, one should remember that, even supposing that the affective contempt of looking down from a superior height falsifies the image of that which it despises, it will at any rate still be a much less serious falsification than that perpetrated on its opponent, in effigy, of course, by the submerged hatred, the vengefulness of the impotent. There is indeed too much carelessness, too much taking lightly, too much looking away, and impatience involved in contempt, even too much joyfulness, for it to be able to transform its object into a real caricature and monster. One should not overlook the almost benevolent nuances that the Greek nobility, for example, bestows on all the words it employs to distinguish the lower orders from itself how they are continuously mingled and sweetened with a kind of pity, consideration, and forbearance, so that finally almost all the words referring to the common man have remained as expressions signifying unhappy, pitiable, campore delos, delaios, ponieros, mocteros, all four meaning wretched. 
the last two of which properly designate the common man as work-slave and beast of burden, and how, on the other hand, bad, low, unhappy, have never ceased to sound to the Greek ear as one note with the tone color in which unhappy preponderates. This as an inheritance from the ancient nobler aristocratic mode of evaluation, which does not belie itself even in its contempt. Philologists should recall the sense in which oisiros, anobos, tleemon, daistikin, simphora are employed. The well-born felt themselves to be the happy. They did not have to establish their happiness artificially by examining their enemies, or to persuade themselves, deceive themselves that they were happy, as all men of ressentiment are in the habit of doing. And they likewise knew, as rounded men replete with energy and therefore necessarily active, that happiness should not be sundered from action. Being active was with them necessarily a part of happiness. Whence the idea of doing well in the sense of faring well takes its origin. All very much the opposite of happiness at the level of the impotent, the oppressed, and those in whom poisonous and inimical feelings are festering, with whom it appears as essentially narcotic, drug, rest, peace, sabbath, slackening of tension, and relaxing of limbs, in short, passively. While the noble man lives in trust and openness with himself, Genaios, of noble descent, underlines the nuance, upright, and probably also naive. The man of ressentiment is neither upright nor naive, nor honest and straightforward with himself. His soul squints. His spirit loves hiding places, secret paths and back doors. Everything covert entices him as his world, his security, his refreshment. He understands how to keep silent, how not to forget, how to wait, how to be provisionally self-deprecating and humble. A race of such men of ressentiment is bound to become eventually cleverer than any noble race. It will also honor cleverness to a far greater degree, namely as a condition of existence of the first importance. While with noble men cleverness can easily acquire a subtle flavor of luxury and subtlety, for here it is far less essential than the perfect functioning of the regulating unconscious instincts, or even than a certain imprudence, perhaps a bold recklessness whether in the face of danger or of the enemy, or that enthusiastic impulsiveness and anger, love, reverence, gratitude, and revenge by which noble souls have at times recognized one another. Ressentiment itself, if it should appear in the nobleman, consummates and exhausts itself in an immediate reaction, and therefore does not poison. On the other hand, it fails to appear at all on countless occasions on which it inevitably appears in the weak and impotent. To be incapable of taking one's enemies, one's accidents, even one's misdeeds seriously for long, that is the sign of the strong. Full natures in whom there is an excess of the power to form, to mold, to recuperate, and to forget. A good example of this in modern times is Mirabu, who had no memory for insults and vile actions done him, and was unable to forgive simply because he forgot. Such a man shakes off with a single shrug many vermin that eat deep into others. Here alone genuine love of one's enemies is possible, supposing it to be possible at all on earth. How much reverence has a nobleman for his enemies? And such reverence is a bridge to love, for he desires his enemy for himself as his mark of distinction. He can endure no other enemy than one in whom there is nothing to despise and very much to honor. In contrast to this, picture the enemy, as the man of ressentiment conceives him, and here precisely is his deed, his creation. He has conceived the evil enemy, the evil one, and this, in fact, is his basic concept from which he then evolves as an afterthought and pendant, a good one, himself. Unquote. Here, Nietzsche introduces the term ressentiment, 
The man of ressentiment, he says, has no power to impose his will on the external world, so he turns his will inward and creates values that are in line with the set of ideals that are within his power to actualize. These ideals end up being much different than those of the noble person. While the noble person has the power to bend the world to his will, the person of ressentiment considers the world a hostile place and can only react to it according to the values she has created for herself. The noble person affirms his goodness by comparing him or herself to the common person. Where the noble one is happy and self-satisfied, the common or low person is miserable and to a certain degree contemptible. Nietzsche makes it clear, however, that the contempt felt by the noble for the common person pales in intensity when compared to the contempt the common person feels for the noble ones. The highborn, the aristocrat, develops a contempt for the common man because he misunderstands the common man. The gulf between them is perceived to be wide, and in his ignorance the nobleman belittles the common man. For the aristocrat, the contempt isn't profound enough to, quote, transform its object into a real caricature and monster, unquote. The contempt of the common man for the noble, born of a rage due to perceived impotence and subsequently a desire for revenge, this contempt allows the common man to see the aristocrat as a monster. Nietzsche examines the etymology of some Greek words to point out that the contempt for the common man felt by those of the Greek aristocracy seemed to be infused with a sense of pity. He describes the nobleman as being happy in his activeness. His good health and energy are to him validations of his purity and goodness. The man of ressentiment needs to examine his enemy, the aristocrat, to feel superior. He artificially creates his happiness by deceiving himself into thinking his passivity and weakness makes him good. Yet, the person of ressentiment, according to Nietzsche, compensates herself with an imaginary revenge. The person of ressentiment is a person of deception. He deceives himself into thinking he is truly happy with his station, and deceives others by presenting himself as humble and deferential, obsequious and subservient. The following quote from this section sums up the nature of ressentiment. Quote, While the nobleman lives in trust and openness with himself, Genaios, of noble descent, underlines the nuance upright and probably also naive. The man of ressentiment is neither upright nor naive nor honest and straightforward with himself. His soul squints. His spirit loves hiding places, secret paths and back doors. Everything covert entices him as his world, his security, his refreshment. He understands how to keep silent, how not to forget, how to wait, how to be provisionally self-deprecating and humble. A race of such men of ressentiment is bound to become eventually cleverer than any noble race. It will also honor cleverness to a far greater degree. Unquote. Finally, Nietzsche mentions forgiving and forgetting on the part of the nobleman and woman. The noble feels a need to respect his enemies, a need for them to be honorable, which would be impossible for a person of ressentiment. The final part of this section is worth rereading here. Quote, in contrast to this, picture the enemy as the man of ressentiment conceives him, and here precisely is his deed, his creation. He has conceived the evil enemy, the evil one, and this in fact is his basic concept, from which he then evolves as an afterthought and pendant, a good one, himself. Unquote. Consider the case of revolutionary France. Prior to the French Revolution, the clergy and the nobility were the top social classes, by 1790, however, the new national government had decreed that the Catholic Church would be subordinated to it. There was much resentment toward the clergy in Paris, and the Church was often the focus of revolutionary ire. In the Vendée region, however, people strongly adhered to their Catholic faith and wanted to preserve their way of life. 
They did not share the ressentiment of the Paris revolutionaries, nor did they share their liberal worldview, and had no interest in having morality dictated to them by big city elites. Seeing the role of the church and society being drastically diminished in short order, their ressentiment was directed at the government. Sound familiar? In 1793, Paris ordered churches everywhere closed and religious folk were persecuted. In January of that year, the execution of Louis XVI had outraged the people of the traditional and conservative Vendée, and this coupled with forced mass military conscription ordered by Paris provoked them into open rebellion. A few years later, when the conflict in the Vendée finally quieted down, a number of French men and women equal to somewhere between one-quarter and one-half of the pre-conflict Vendée region had already been killed. Fast forward to modern times and turn on the TV news and check out the comment threads attached to various online news articles these days, and you'll see no shortage of ressentiment on display. People more and more seem to feel that vitriolic speech toward even those who state opposing viewpoints in the most innocuous manner is completely justified, and the cogwheels of the outrage machine keep turning vigorously. Such a state of affairs, as history shows, can't go on for too long without some kind of eruption of social disorder. Section 11. Quote, this, then, is quite the contrary of what the nobleman does, who conceives the basic concept good in advance and spontaneously out of himself, and only then creates for himself an idea of bad. This bad of noble origin and that evil out of the cauldron of unsatisfied hatred, the former an after-production, a side-issue, a contrasting shade, the latter, on the contrary, the original thing, the beginning, the distinctive deed in the conception of a slave morality, how different these words, bad and evil, are, although they are both apparently the opposite of the same concept, good. But it is not the same concept, good. One should ask rather precisely who is evil in the sense of the morality of ressentiment. The answer, in all strictness, is precisely the good man of the other morality, precisely the noble, powerful man, the ruler, but dyed in another color, interpreted in another fashion, seen in another way by the venomous eye of ressentiment. Here there is one thing we shall be the last to deny. He who knows these good men only as enemies knows only evil enemies, and the same men who are held so sternly in check among equals by custom, respect, usage, gratitude, and even more by mutual suspicion and jealousy, and who on the other hand in their relations with one another show themselves so resourceful in consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride, and friendship, once they go outside where the strange, the stranger is found, they are not much better than uncaged beasts of prey. There they savor a freedom from all social constraints. They compensate themselves in the wilderness for the tension engendered by protracted confinement and enclosure within the peace of society. They go back to the innocent conscience of the beast of prey, as triumphant monsters who perhaps emerge from a disgusting procession of murder, arson, rape, and torture, exhilarated and undisturbed of soul, as if it were no more than a student's prank, convinced they have provided their poets with a lot more material for song and praise. One cannot fail to see at the bottom of all these noble races the beast of prey, the splendid blonde beast, prowling about avidly in search of spoil and victory. This hidden core needs to erupt from time to time, the animal has to get out again and go back to the wilderness. The Roman, Arabian, Germanic, Japanese nobility, the Homeric heroes, the Scandinavian Vikings, they all shared this need. It is the noble races that have left behind them the concept barbarian wherever they have gone. Even their highest culture betrays a consciousness of it and even a pride in it. For example, when Pericles says to his Athenians in his famous funeral oration, quote, 
Our boldness has gained access to every land and sea, everywhere raising imperishable monuments to its goodness and wickedness, unquote. The boldness of noble races, mad, absurd, and sudden in its expression, the incalculability, even incredibility of their undertakings. Pericles specially commends the Rithymia of the Athenians, their indifference to and contempt for security, body, life, comfort, their hair-raising cheerfulness and profound joy in all destruction, in all the voluptuousness of victory and cruelty. All this came together in the minds of those who suffered from it, in the image of the barbarian, the evil enemy, perhaps as the Goths, the Vandals, the deep and icy mistrust the German still arouses today whenever he gets into a position of power is an echo of that inextinguishable horror with which Europe observed for centuries that raging of the blonde Germanic beast, although between the old Germanic tribes and us Germans there exists hardly a conceptual relationship, let alone one of blood." Unquote. One wonders what Nietzsche would have had to say on his 100th birthday in 1944 had he lived to be that old, looking at the rise and impending fall of Nazi Germany. Continuing, section 11, quote, I once drew attention to the dilemma in which Hesiod found himself when he concocted his succession of cultural epics and sought to express them in terms of gold, silver, and bronze. He knew no way of handling the contradiction presented by the glorious but at the same time terrible and violent world of Homer, except by dividing one epic into two epics, which he then placed one behind the other, first the epic of the heroes and demigods of Troy and Thebes, the form in which that world had survived in the memory of the noble races who were those heroes' true descendants, then the bronze epic, the form in which that same world appeared to the descendants of the downtrodden, pillaged, mistreated, abducted, enslaved, an epic of bronze as aforesaid, hard, cold, cruel, devoid of feeling or conscience, destructive and bloody. Supposing that what is at any rate believed to be the truth really is true, and the meaning of all culture is the reduction of the beast of prey man to a tame and civilized animal, a domestic animal, then one would undoubtedly have to regard all those instincts of reaction and ressentiment through whose aid the noble races and their ideals were finally confounded and overthrown as the actual instruments of culture, which is not to say that the bearers of these instincts themselves represent culture, Rather, is the reverse not merely probable? No, today it is palpable. These bearers of the oppressive instincts that thirst for reprisal, the descendants of every kind of European and non-European slavery, and especially of the entire pre-Aryan populace, they represent the regression of mankind. These instruments of culture are a disgrace to man, and rather an accusation and counter-argument against culture in general. One may be quite justified in continuing to fear the blonde beast at the core of all noble races and in being on one's guard against it. But who would not a hundred times sooner fear where one can also admire than not fear but be permanently condemned to the repellent sight of the ill-constituted, dwarfed, atrophied, and poisoned? And is that not our fate? What today constitutes our antipathy to man? For we suffer from man, beyond doubt. Unquote. The term blonde beast has been a source of controversy, but that seems due to one too many superficial readings of Nietzsche. He says, quote, One may be quite justified in continuing to fear the blonde beast at the core of all noble races and in being on one's guard against it. Unquote. Recall, however, earlier in this section when he said, quote, This hidden core needs to erupt from time to time. The animal has to get out again and go back to the wilderness. The Roman, Arabian, Germanic, Japanese nobility, the Homeric heroes, the Scandinavian Vikings, they all shared this need. Unquote. 
It seems clear that Nietzsche is calling the old conquerors, who were supposedly predominantly blonde in northern Europe, blonde beasts. Yet it also seems clear that he's saying that a version of the so-called blonde beast existed in all noble races, and he mentions the Roman, Arabian, Japanese nobility, and the Homeric heroes of Greece, along with the Germanic and Scandinavian Vikings. The footnote provided by Kaufman concerning the blonde beast states, quote, This is the first appearance in Nietzsche's writings of the notorious blonde beast. It is encountered twice more in the present section. A variant appears in section 17 of the second essay. And then the blonde beastie appears once more in Twilight, the improvers of mankind, section 2. Portable Nietzsche, page 502. That is all. For a detailed discussion of these passages, see Kaufman's Nietzsche, chapter 7, section 3. Quote, the blonde beast is not a racial concept and does not refer to the Nordic race of which the Nazis later made so much. Nietzsche specifically refers to Arabs and Japanese, and the blondness presumably refers to the beast, the lion. Unquote. Francis Golfing, in his free translation of the genealogy, deletes the blonde beast three times out of four, only where it appears the second time in the original text he has the blonde Teutonic beast. This helps to corroborate the myth that the blondness refers to the Teutons. Without the image of the lion, however, we lose not only some of Nietzsche's poetry as well as any chance to understand one of his best-known coinages, we also lose an echo of the crucial first chapter of Zarathustra, where the lion represents the second stage in the three metamorphoses of the spirit, above the obedient camel but below the creative child. Portable Nietzsche, page 138. Arthur Danto has suggested that if lions were black and Nietzsche had written Black Beast, the expression would provide support for African instead of German nationalists. Panthers are black and magnificent animals, but anyone calling black people black beasts and associating them with a disgusting procession of murder, arson, rape, and torture, adding that the animal has to get out again and go back to the wilderness, and then going on to speak of their hair-raising cheerfulness and profound joy in all destruction, would scarcely be taken to provide support for nationalists. On the contrary, he would be taken for a highly prejudiced critic of the black man. No other German writer of comparable structure has been a more extreme critic of German nationalism than Nietzsche. For all that, it is plain that in this section he sought to describe the behavior of the ancient Greeks and Romans, the Goths and the Vandals, not that of 19th century Germans. Footnote, unquote. Continuing section 11. Quote, not fear, rather that we no longer have anything left to fear in man, that the maggot man is swarming in the foreground, that the tame man, the hopelessly mediocre and insipid man, has already learned to feel himself as the goal and zenith, as the meaning of history, as higher man, that he has indeed a certain right to feel thus, insofar as he feels himself elevated above the surefit of ill-constituted, sickly, weary, and exhausted people of which Europe is beginning to stink today, as something at least relatively well-constituted, at least still capable of living, at least affirming life. Unquote. This section ends with Nietzsche saying that fear of the animal conqueror is justified, yet in being afraid we've become overly cautious and have consequently reduced ourselves to being not only something not so frightening anymore, but also something not so admirable either. It seems he's implying that there's a balance point where we could still be people capable of greatness while at the same time have our will to power kept in check to a degree effective enough to keep us from overstepping the boundaries of human decency. Section 12 Quote, at this point I cannot suppress a sigh and a last hope. What is it that I especially find utterly unendurable? 
that I cannot cope with, that makes me choke and faint. Bad air, bad air, the approach of some ill-constituted thing, that I have to smell the entrails of some ill-constituted soul. How much one is able to endure, distress, want, bad weather, sickness, toil, solitude. Fundamentally, one can cope with everything else, born as one is to a subterranean life of struggle. One emerges again and again into the light. One experiences again and again one's golden hour of victory, and then one stands forth as one was born, unbreakable, tensed, ready for new, even harder, remoter things, like a bow that distress only serves to draw totter. But grant me from time to time, if there are divine goddesses in the realm beyond good and evil, grant me the sight, but one glance of something perfect, wholly achieved, happy, mighty, triumphant, something still capable of arousing fear, of a man who justifies man, of a complimentary and redeeming lucky hit on the part of man for the sake of which one still may believe in man. For this is how things are. The diminution and leveling of European man constitutes our greatest danger, for the sight of him makes us weary. We can see nothing today that wants to grow greater. We suspect that things will continue to go down, down, to become thinner, more good-natured, more prudent, more comfortable, more mediocre, more indifferent, more Chinese, more Christian. There is no doubt that man is getting better all the time. Here precisely is what has become a fatality for Europe. Together with the fear of man, we have also lost our love of him, our reverence for him, our hopes for him, even the will to him. The sight of man now makes us weary. What is nihilism today, if it is not that? We are weary of man. Unquote. Here we get the full expression of Nietzsche's sense of disappointment in what Western civilization has done to suppress that which makes us capable of greatness in order to allay our fears. He says we've become self-loathing creatures and says our nihilism is a product of our weariness of ourselves. Next time, we'll finish the first essay and reflect upon what we've read. Until then, thank you for listening.